Joshua as we continue our study of that book. Um, I'm going to kind of jump around in reading a portion of it, so kind of bear with me. We'll read the first two verses, and then we'll get 6 and 7, and then we'll get 13 through 23. Hopefully, you'll get the whole sense of the, of the chapter. Here we go, Joshua chapter 13 at verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all of those of the Geshurites from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, it is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of Avim. Now, six, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Misrephoth Mayim, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only a lot of the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Verse 13. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Makathites, but Geshur and Makath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. And Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of the people of Reuben according to their clans. So their territory was from Eror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland of Medibah, with Heshbon and all its cities that are in the tableland, Debon and Bamoth Baal, and Beth Baal, Meon, and Jahaz, and Kedemoth, and Mephath, and Kerathim, and Sibmah, and Zareth Shashar on the hill of the valley, and Beth Peor, and the slopes of Pisgah, and Beth Jeshemoth. That is, all the cities of the tableland, and all the kingdom of Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses defeated with the leaders of Midian, Evi, and Rakim, and Zur, and Hur, and Reba, the princes of Sion who lived in the land. Balaam also, the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with a sword by the people of Israel among the rest of their slain. And the border of the people of Reuben was the Jordan as a boundary. This was the inheritance of the people of Reuben according to their clans, with their cities and villages. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, uh, chapter 13 of the book of Joshua marks the beginning of a new section in the book of Joshua. Uh, Chapters 1 through 4 have to do with the entering of the land. Uh, chapters 5 through 12 have to do with the taking of the land, that is, those battles that were fought by Israel in the south and in the north. We come to chapter 13, really through verses, uh, through chapter 21, and it's a section dealing with the subject of allotting the land, or, uh, distributing the land, or possessing the land. And, and much of this section, that, uh, this section of 13 through 21, we're gonna skip. Which, for people like me, is is um, borders on the unpardonable. 
But um, let, let me try to explain why we're going to skip a lot of that. Guys, um, watching war movies is a whole lot more fun than uh, participating in a land survey. I, I think you'll agree with that. And um, much of this section, 13 through 21, is a description of the boundaries of each of the 12 tribes. It's a land survey. You saw some of it in, in what I was reading. I read that on purpose so that you would get a hint of what um, what this section is about. Let me let me let me just show you a little bit more of what you're missing. Turn over to chapter 15 uh, with me, and let me uh, read beginning at verse 21. Actually, the section starts in 20. But this is a description of the territory of Judah. Okay, <laughs> I'm in chapter 15, beginning at verse 21. The cities belong to the tribe of the people of Judah in the extreme south toward the boundary of Edom where Kabzeel, Eder, Jagger, Kena, Dimona, Adonai, uh, Kedesh, Hazor, Ethnam, Zeph, Telim, Beeloth, uh, Hazaroth, um, Ammon. That goes on until the verse 47. I can't even pronounce all that stuff in there. But that's what this section is. It's a discussion of the the um, distribution of the land amongst the 12 tribes. And so what it is, is your boundary in the north is yada, 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 and then you go down, da, 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 and then you go over here, and then da, 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 or in the boundary of the great sea. And that's, that's what the section is about. It's the allotment, it's the distribution of the promised land to the 12 tribes. And so... Um, that's why we're gonna, that's why we're gonna skip a whole lot of that, guys. I, and I, I, I will say this to you, before you, before we make fun of this section, or even moan, uh, too loudly, you need to look at it from, from Israel's vantage point, because what this section really is, is one glorious display of God's fidelity to his promises. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, he had promised to Abraham, I am going to give this land to your children and your descendants. And here we are a thousand years later, and that's what's going on. So, so Israel is, is not listening to this, um, and thinking that this is dripping with tedium. Not at all. Her ears are tingling with excitement as she hangs on every word of what's being said by God to her about the, the allotment that each tribe is getting in the promised land. But now, whereas Israel finds this incredibly exciting, I'm not sure that you would. So a lot of that we're, we're going to just uh, fly through. But guys, um, with, with that said, while while going over the boundaries of each one of these tribes one by one in this section, the narrator of this story mentions, oh, he mentions some stuff that I hope that we'll find helpful. Some stuff that I think are, is instructional for us. In the midst of his outlining the boundaries, he says some things that are tucked in there that, that I think has some real value and merit for other possessors of a piece of the promised land, people like us. So what I've sought to do is go through here and pick out some things that, that, that I hope will be instructive and beneficial for God's people 
now. So um, I want to give you a bit of a taste of what's going on here by just pointing you to three or four things, actually three things this morning in this, this opening section of, or this opening chapter of this section, um, as they distribute, as Joshua distributes the land. And there's, um, there's three headings that I want to use to make my comments. First of all, the demand. Secondly, the danger. And third, the distinction. So that's how we'll organize our thoughts this morning. First of all, I want you to take a look at the demand. Let me explain. Here's the demand, ladies and gentlemen. Possessions must be possessed. Before you can begin to enjoy all that is yours, some work has got to be done. And, and, and what kind of work? Well, let me explain. Notice that the chapter opens um, with us being told that Joshua is old. Some of us take that rather personally, but um, uh, it says a couple of times, Joshua is old and there's still a whole lot of land out there that has yet to be possessed. This land was theirs by divine donation, and yet, at this point, much of that land had not been taken. That's why I read verses 2 and 3 for you. Because the Gesherites and all of his buddies are still in the land, and all of those Canaanites and Philistines are still in the land. So the Lord shows up on Joshua's doorstep one more time because he's got one more big job for Joshua to do. And it's mentioned there in verse 7. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance (coughs) to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And you do know, I hope, that that two and a half tribes are on the the east side of the Jordan. Gad and Reuben and a half-tribe, they've already gotten theirs. So the last thing, and Joshua's an old man. Nobody has the clout to pull this off except Joshua. And so this has got to be done before he dies. You've got to get this land all distributed up with all the boundaries. You've got to get this done and got to get it done before you die. In all of these previous battles, uh, in chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, Israel had made significant progress. Yes. Her, her domination was, was substantial, but it was not total. So what's left over belongs to Israel, but she has not yet occupied it. And, and by the way, um, maybe you never heard this before, but um, in all of Israel's history, she never did possess everything that was hers by God's gift. The land was hers, but every square foot of it had to be occupied. It had to be possessed, and usually via a battle, and they never did do that. Now notice this sad piece of commentary that I read you out of verse 13. Take a look. The the narrator says, and by the way, the, the man who writes this book, who is kind of anonymous, He writes it with the advantage of historical perspective. That is, he's writing looking back, and he says this in verse 13. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Makathites, but Geshur and Makath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Now, gang, look with me over at verse 2. 
This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all of those of the Geshurites. Now, that's what Joshua was told. Those Geshurites are out there in the land and y'all need to get rid of them. And then the narrator comes back, who knows, decades later with a, with a historical vantage point and says, you know what? Those Geshurites are still there. They never got rid of those Geshurites nor the Maccathites, and they are there to this day. By the way, that's not the first time that's, that's not the last time that's going to be said. This is the first of a series of accusations about Israel and her failure to completely obey. It, it doesn't bring an immediate crisis. You know, disobedience seldom does bring an immediate crisis. But it certainly becomes a nuisance. It, it becomes a drag on their soul. It's a thorn in their flesh. Because they never got rid of enemies that dwelled in land that they possessed. But they never possessed. Now let me, let me try to bring that over to our neighborhood and see if we can um, learn from it. Guys, um, in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, Peter makes a statement that God has granted us all things necessary for life and godliness. Did you get that? God has granted to us all things necessary for life and godliness. He has withheld nothing that would enable us to live a holy and a joy-filled life. But you wouldn't know it by looking at us, would you? There's so much unclaimed territory still out there for us. Soren Kierkegaard, um, a Danish philosopher, tells a delightful little story, uh, which illustrates my point, I hope. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story about a make-believe land in which only ducks lived. Now, this is a make-believe land where only ducks live. Soren Kierkegaard tells the story. Are you with me? Uh, and, of course, there's only ducks that live in this in this place. And on Sunday mornings, all the ducks would get up and brush their feathers and and, and get fixed up and, and waddle on down to church. And then after waddling down the, the aisles, they would kind of find their way into their pews and kind of, you know, scooch in and, and squat down <coughs> there in, in one of the pews in the, in the duck church. And shortly thereafter, um, the duck preacher would come out, uh, all dressed up in his regalia and, and, um, he would take his place, he would waddle in and take his place behind the duck pulpit, and he would open his duck Bible. And um, and it, uh, on this particular Sunday, he, he opened his duck Bible to the place that described God's great gift to ducks. Wings! Wings! And then, and then the, the, the duck preacher would, would begin, he began to wax eloquent about, about this statement in the duck Bible. And he says, with wings, 
We ducks can fly. And um, we can we can mount up with 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 the eagles and soar into the heavens. And uh, we can we can escape because of the gift of wings. We can we can escape the confinement of pins and and fences. And and and, and we can know the euphoria of of complete freedom. And um, we must give thanks to God. For this great gift to us of wings. And all the little duck congregants get all excited as they sit in their pews. And they in unison shout back to the duck preacher. Hallelujah. Amen. And then they all waddle home. You know guys, um, we Christians... All of us live so far beneath our privileges. We, um, we waddle when we ought to be flying. Guys, how much of our spiritual heritage is still out there and as of yet remains unclaimed by us? Can I give you some examples? Let me, let me mention three. Let's talk for a minute about um, a sense of eternal safety for my soul. That is, that I am everlastingly safe. Guys, that's a piece of my inheritance. But many of us don't have that. I'm not talking about presumption. I'm talking about a certainty of soul that is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ for me. You know, our staff... um, it gets together three times a month and studies a book on Tuesday afternoons. And several years, a couple of years ago, we were studying, I forget which book, but this subject came up. The subject of eternal security and, and eternal safety of my soul. And, and we were talking about the number of people to whom we minister as a staff who don't have this. And so I decided, okay, I'm, we'll do a little, little trick here. Not a trick, but a, but a lesson, a teaching tool. And I said, everybody take out a pen and piece of paper and I want you to write down a percentage Write down a percentage of the number of people that that you think in our congregation who do not have a sense of everlasting safety of their souls. So everybody wrote down their little numbers and then they had to show them. Do you know what conclusion we came to? 85%. It was our opinion that 85% of the people to whom we have a ministry are wrestling with this sense of certainty that their soul is everlastingly safe. My goodness, there's Gesherites and Macathites still in our souls. We're so confused about what it means to perform I mean, if we perform well, then God loves us. If we don't perform well, then he doesn't love us. We're still kind of mixed up over the self-righteousness thing. And consequently, there's a whole lot of our inheritance that we hadn't gotten yet. Or how about this? You know that that, that verse in the New Testament that says... um, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
It mocks us, ladies and gentlemen. The text mocks us. Because we don't have that. It's a part of our inheritance. But we ain't got it. It's a possession that hasn't been possessed. One more. You know that statement in um, Philippians 4, verse 17 that says, and um, our God will provide all your needs out of his riches and glory. That, that sense of financial serenity. I'm not talking about financial abundance. I'm just talking about financial serenity. But to get that, oh, I'm going to have to fight some Macathites and, and Gergeshites in my soul. <laughs> you know, I've, I've still got the issues of fear and greed and materialism and consumerism. Why, I'm much better at hoarding than I am giving. But that sense of knowing that after God has been honored with my resources, that I have peace in my financial place, we ain't got that. It's a part of our inheritance, but we just hadn't had, we haven't possessed it yet. And all those Gergeshites and Macathites begin to continue to drag our souls down. It's an anchor. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the demand among us is this possessions have to be possessed by people who, uh, to whom they belong. There's, um, there's another, the second thing that I want you to see in this, this, how the narrator drops these things into this otherwise rather detailed land survey. There is a danger. And he mentions a danger that there is always the possibility of having among us Phony possessors. Did you see it? Um, it's in verse 22. Balaam also, the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination. Guys, um, the narrator of this story goes out of his way to drop Balaam's name into a paragraph that is describing Reuben's inheritance. He's giving you a land survey, and all of a sudden, he bounces over to this subject of Balaam. You remember that name, Balaam? Oh, yeah, you do. Sure you do. He's the one that, um, um, his don- Balaam's ass, Balaam's donkey that talked. There are three chapters in the Old Testament devoted to the story of Balaam. Remember, it was Balaam, Balak, don't get those confused, Balak is a Moabite king, Balak tried to hire Balaam because Balak had seen what Israel had done to two Amorite kings, Sion and Hog. And so Balak tried to hire Balaam to come curse Israel because he was afraid of them. And so somewhere in there, Balaam figures out, I shouldn't do that. Could I read you just a few things that Balaam said? Can, can I can I read you these things? I mean, there's there's five of them, but it'll give you a sense. So kind of stay with me. This is the first one. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Ooh, it's kind of impressive. I mean, don't you think? Um, let, me, let me read you another one. Um, 
Oh, here's one. Um, let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. Mm, how about this one? God is not man that he should lie or a son of man. This all comes out of Balaam's mouth. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Or um, or how about, these are two that describe his, his opinion of Israel. This is, uh, he says, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. And then he says, finally, blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. And yet our text tells us that Balaam was killed by the army of Israel. Why? Well, Numbers chapter 31 verse 16 tells you why. It tells you that even though Balaam had said all of those wonderful things, it was Balaam who persuaded the women of Moab to seduce the men of Israel, producing this terribly ugly scene called Baal of Peor. And then you come to the New Testament. And in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 15, Peter tells us that Balaam was really in it for the money. That he was a, he was available to the highest bidder. That he was uh, guilty of greed. He was a prophet for hire. And then later in the book of Revelation, we're told that it was Balaam who led God's people into serious sin. Now, ladies, stay with me. Ladies and gentlemen, Balaam desired to die the death of the righteous and yet was slain fighting against the very righteous men that he envied. He is an example, ladies and gentlemen, of a consummate false prophet. Now really, can, 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 can you, can you believe that somebody could say all those wonderful things and still be a false prophet? Happens every day, ladies and gentlemen. How long has Robert Tilton been on television? Is he still on there? We got a whole new crop of false prophets now, ladies and gentlemen. There's a guy by the name of Bell, Rob Bell, and he's written a book about universalism. Claiming that everybody is going to ultimately end up in heaven. And do you know that we have people, a part of this family, who have called over here asking if we have his book in our bookstore? Don't buy that book! Ladies and gentlemen, there's always the possibility that there is an apparent possessor who doesn't really possess. Is that you? Is that me? I don't know, ladies and gentlemen, but all I can tell you is that the possibility exists. One other thing that I want you to see is the distinction. We've, we've looked at the, the demand and the danger. I want you to look at a distinction that the narrator makes in the text. 
in, in the telling of the story about the what everybody got, whatever tribe got in his allotment, he, he mentions twice, in fact, he mentions what it is that Levi got. He mentions it in verse 14. He also mentions it in verse 33, which I didn't read. But in this, this chapter, he's discussing um, Reuben's inheritance, and twice he drops in there what was given to Levi, which I, which I found a bit interesting and odd. It, it, it seems to me that the narrator is using the Levites, which who are really kind of the um, the professional clergy of that day, he's using the Levites to point God's people to the best possession of all. And Israel's response is something like, you lucky Levites. I mean, it's not that the Levites didn't get anything, it's that, that they didn't get what the others got. The others got cities and land. And the Levites got God. And the implication, I think, is that, oh, how fortunate Levi was. Tell me, which do you prefer? You want the cities and the land? Or do you want God? Which ones do you think are the real fortunate ones? I'll say this as a, as a representative of the 21st century professional clergy. I struggled with wanting what others got. Not, not happy with what God gave me. Contentment. It's one of those real Gesherites in the soul, isn't it? It's a battle for us. It's just another piece of my inheritance. That I haven't yet possessed. Let me close by telling you a, just a brief story about Levi. My, the story is found in Genesis 34, if you want to check me out this afternoon. Um, Levi, as you know, is one of the sons of, um, of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. He had two wives, Rachel and Leah, but he had 12 sons. And one of the sons of uh, Jacob was Levi. Well, Levi had a sister, and, his, and her name was Dinah. And um, Dinah, on one occasion, was criminally assaulted. She was um, she was wrongfully violated by a man by the name of Shechem, whose father's name was Hamor, and they were Hivites. And so um, Levi and his brother Simeon cooked up a scheme to... Um, to get revenge. And so they convinced all the Hivites to be circumcised. And uh, once they did, and in the midst of their immobility and pain, uh, 
Levi and Simeon come in and butcher all the men of the Hivites in Shechem. For that, his father Jacob curses Levi in, in chapter 49. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, years later, God takes the worst of the flock, the Levites, and he makes preachers out of them. I think that's kind of like what he did here at Grace of Ann. He took the worst of the flock and made a preacher out of him. But gang, even in the curse that's on the Levites, we find here that they have become a blessing to God's people and to God himself. My point is, guys, that is God's MO. That's his modus operandi. He delights to take the, the, um, the outcast, the marginalized, and clean them up and then use them for his glory. I mean, you know the story of John Newton, don't you? The slave trader who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. No curse is so great that it moves me out of the reach of God's grace. Guys, what we've done in the past is shameful. But God's specialty is grace. Grace to undeserving people like us. You know the story of Chuck Colson? You know that name, Chuck Colson? Chuck Colson uh, was um, the chief of staff of the White House of, of, of the Nixon administration. Uh, during the back during the Watergate era. Now, Watergate occurred in the 70s for you young whippersnappers. Um, but uh, it was an ugly scene, and they all I mean, got thrown in jail except for Nixon. He was pardoned, the president. But Chuck Colson goes to jail, and while he's in jail, he meets Christ. Colson becomes a Christian inside a prison. And once he gets out of prison, he writes a book a book entitled Born Again. And he tells the story of all the wicked things that they did in the White House. And it'll, it'll just, it'll curl your eyelashes, ladies and gentlemen, what was going on in the Nixon administration inside the Oval Office. And yet inside a prison, God drew one of the filthiest to Jesus Christ, cleans him up, and then uses him to begin an organization that is an international organization to inmates called Prison Fellowship. Have you ever heard Chuck Colson's testimony, ladies and gentlemen? But in my opinion, ladies and gentlemen, his testimony doesn't compare to Levi's. Levi was a murderer. He was a shameful conniver and killer. And God cleaned him up and used him on in a marvelous way. Do you have one of those?
testimony? Do you have one? Do you have a story about how God brought you to Christ in spite of what you've done? Cleaned you up? Set you off in a new direction? Do you have one of those? If not, then it's probably because it's never happened in your life. start right now. Our Father, oh, that you would do that. Oh, that you would bring man, woman to yourself, to Jesus Christ this morning. Oh, that you would cause men and women to see that apart from Jesus Christ, that they are everlastingly lost. That there is no, there is no salvation apart from him. That he is the only name that's given under heaven by which any man can ever be saved. And though we live in such a pluralistically charged in culture, the real cruel part is for us to withhold the news that Jesus Christ has paid for our sin. So, Father, would you open wide the mouth of your people? Would you, um, would you protect us from the dangers of having false prophets amongst us? And would you drive us to the place where we, by faith, take hold of all that is ours. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name and for his sake.